0: Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. What the Lord gave me that I feel is time-sensitive is a message really partially that Daddy's preached all of his life about the Revised Roman Empire. Today's message is Rome Resurrected which makes me a little nervous about the elections. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 2 around verse 26. And I'm going to read a chunk of passage and we're just going to go straight through it and I'll read it to you. This is about uh, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon at the time when Daniel was brought into Babylon. The Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. Daniel and His three friends that we know by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the providence of Babylon. They were very wise uh, young men, and they had been brought into the council of the king because of their wisdom. Of course, being Jewish, they were brought up in the understandings of the ways of the Lord. So this was a God-given wisdom that a secular king recognized and was utilizing. In chapter 26, it says, The king answered and said unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. They gave him Babylonian names. That was their Babylonian, his Babylonian name. Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof. A little back history. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and he woke up and he was very disturbed by the dream. He knew that it was something important and it was something from the Lord. And he either didn't remember the dream Or he refused to tell them the dream because he called in all of the magicians and the wise men and the Chaldeans and all of these soothsayers and all of the the people who give counsel to the king of Babylon. And he said, if you can tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation of it, then I'll give you great reward and, and position. And if you don't, I'll kill you and they kept telling him that this is an impossible thing that you're doing nobody would ever ask for us to tell you what you dreamed and the interpretation and he basically nebuchadnezzar told them if i tell you the dream then how do i trust the interpretation you might tell me anything but if you can tell me what i dreamed and what it means then i'll know that you have the real interpretation and so they didn't have an answer so he sent out a decree to kill all of them well, when the, the head of the guard came to Daniel, because he was one of the wise men, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were part of the wise men, came to kill him for not having an answer. He's like, whoa, wait, what, what's going on? Why so hasty? Why so quick with your response? And he told them what was happening. He said, go tell the king to give us some time and I'll seek the Lord. We'll pray and God will, will intervene. So he went back. He, said, he told the king and the king said, fine. So they fasted, they prayed, And that night, God gave Daniel a dream. And so Daniel knows the dream. He goes to the king, and this is where we stand right here. He's standing before the king, and the king is asking him, okay, you tell me then, what did you dream, and what's the interpretation? Let's go to the next verse. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath determined cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they can't show it unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass." But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sake that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mayest know the thoughts of thine heart. So he prefaces it before he does it by saying, not taking glory. He said, it's not because I'm smarter than any of these other people. It's not because I know anything more or have any greater power. This is coming from God himself through me because of mercy for the sakes of those that you're probably going to kill if we don't give you this answer. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part. Of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, or a king of kings, a king of kings, small k, not the king of kings, At that time, he was the greatest king on the planet, on earth, as far as earthly physical kings. So he was a king of kings. He ruled the worldly empire of that time. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art his head of gold. So he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom that exists right now is the head of gold on this statue, this image that you saw in the dream. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another kingdom, a third one of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So he's telling him that there's going to be successive kingdoms that will rule the earth from Nebuchadnezzar's time forward, they will grow a little weaker every time, but they are going to be the superpower of the world of that time. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, because when it gets down to the ten toes, it's separated into several kingdoms that are part of one larger kingdom. He's talking about these kings, all of those kings, represented by the ten kingdoms that are a part of major kingdom. In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom... Which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever so jesus is coming back this is the the millennial reign of christ god will set up a kingdom and it won't be left to other people to rule it jesus will rule it himself and his kingdom will destroy all of these other kingdoms that were part of the ten toes and the feet that's why the rock comes and hits the feet and destroys the statue from the feet up for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron the brass the clay the silver and the gold the great god hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter and the dream is certain And the interpretation of is sure so it won't be changed it's not alterable it will come to pass then the king nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshiped daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him the king answered unto daniel and said oh of a truth it is that your god is a god of gods and a lord of kings ruler over kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldest reveal this secret. We won't read it, but if you go to the next chapter, that's actually the chapter that uh, Josh read last night for the fall for Jesus. In the next chapter, he promotes Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to their public offices uh, and gave them a lot of money and attention and, and all these things because of their faithfulness to be able to give this interpretation. However, Nebuchadnezzar was ruling the world at the time. This was a good prophecy for him because it showed that his kingdom was strong. It was pure. It was powerful. Daniel even said, God appointed it. Nebuchadnezzar starts to get a little prideful. That Antichrist spirit starts to slip in and it starts the downward spiral because in the very next chapter, you see him building an image which stands to reason very logically that it was probably the same image that he saw in the dream. He builds a statue and tells men to worship it so this image that represents these kingdoms of men that rule the whole world from the time of Nebuchadnezzar till the return of Christ they are Antichrist kingdoms they are kingdoms that are set up by men to worship men he sets the image up of it and says you must worship it or you will die of course we know that happens again in the end the Antichrist says we'll put forth an image and you will have to worship it or die This is where that spirit is coming from, through that bloodline, through all of those who ruled the world. Remember, whenever Satan uh, tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said, I can make you ruler over any kingdom in the world. It is in my power to do so. The devil has been ruling the world as far as physical kingdoms through. Now, Jesus defeated him with a spiritual kingdom, a greater kingdom, and he is coming back in the end as that rock to destroy these kingdoms and set up his own kingdom. But until that happens, there will always be a world power leading in some form or the other, and it will always be ruled by the spirit of Antichrist, and it will get worse and worse. Now, why is this relevant for now and for today? There's a lot of scripture we would have to cover to really do this lesson in depth. Um, So I may go ahead and do a full series teaching on podcasts to really break it down, but we're going to have to just give a synopsis today. And what it comes down to is we've got to come to realize that you pull up the image, if you have it, daddy's taught from this poster many, many, many years. And it shows you kind of a representation of what he dreamed and what the different kingdoms were. We know Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Babylon was the first kingdom. Now, throughout the history we have had exactly what was prophesied. The medo Persian empire was the one that was a little weaker of silver, but still pretty strong and pure Greece was the, uh, the brass part at the bottom. The legs were the divided kingdoms. It comes down into the feet and the legs. The legs transition into the feet. And this is what scholars identify as the revived Roman Empire. Because without going through all of the text and scriptures and the, to get through to it, it tells you that it's basically what Rome was, revived. Now, why would it be considered Rome revived? Some say, well, it'll be set up in Rome. Some say, oh, well, it's because it's the Roman Catholic Church. No, I think it's a little more subtle than that. In the time of Jesus, when Jesus died, was resurrected, ascended, and then the day of Pentecost came and the power of God fell out on the early church, the early apostles said, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel gave. When he said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and upon your servants and your handmaidens and, and the old men will have visions and dream dreams and young men, they gave this. He said, this prophecy is fulfilled now. So then we have to understand that it is decreed in Scripture that the last days was taking place at the time of Jesus. The last days actually began around the time of Jesus' birth. And it's going to carry through until his return because there's something that happened in between. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. I'm going to hit really quick on a couple of one-verse passages just to prove a point. You can turn if you want, or you can turn ahead to 2 Thessalonians 2 because that'll be our next big chunk of passages. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read this prophetic warning. About the time of Jesus. It says, Behold, I will send unto you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible and dreadful day of the Lord. That is the wrath of God. The dreadful day of the Lord is when the wrath of God comes and, and God returns and everybody's judged. He says, Before this happens, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. What curse? In Genesis chapter 9, we talked this morning a little bit about the covenants. You don't have to turn there. I'm just doing it to show you something. The last time the whole earth was smitten with a curse was at the flood of Noah, right? And this was the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. Well, part of it, it says, And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, And every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant note that title that God gave the covenant with Noah the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth and God said unto Noah this is the token Of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth now there's a lot to the Noahic covenant we do have some teachings online about it you can go I don't have time to go into all of it and everything that was said but the point is is that this covenant God calls the everlasting covenant he says I won't destroy the whole earth again by flood in my wrath and the rainbow is the symbol of this covenant So then we jump to Isaiah chapter 24, verse 5, and we read a prophecy that's pretty sobering because some people teach that the Noahic and the Abrahamic covenants are unconditional, but that's not scriptural. Though they are everlasting covenants and God will keep his part in them, we don't keep our part and there is judgment for it. In fact, it says judgment will come upon the children of disobedience because of their their sins. And this is proof that it's not unconditional. There are ordinances. If you read through them, you'll find out what they are. You can go listen to those lessons for it. But the prophecy given says, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, that they that dwell therein are desolate, Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. So the curse that Malachi was talking about when he said, if I don't send Jesus to turn the hearts of the children back to the father, I'll have to send the curse to destroy the earth. This is the curse that he's talking about. It's wrath. God will keep his part. He won't destroy the world by flood again. He'll use fire this time. Because we don't keep our part. We break the everlasting covenant. There's so much sin and wickedness on the earth that it has to be destroyed. It would be unjust for God to continue to let the suffering of the innocent continue. He's got to stop it. He's got to answer the cries of the innocent. And it comes by fire. That's the curse that Jesus came to stop. So in other words, the last days should have happened when Jesus was here. The end, the wrath, all of it, it should have already happened. That's why Jesus came, to bring revival and give us a little more time. So for those that are like, well, when is the end times coming? Well, it came. We're, we're buying it day by day. That's why I tell everybody it's not a politician that's going to give us more time. It's evangelism. You've got to spread the, the salt. You've got to preserve the land. You've got to push back the tide of wickedness or it's coming. Amen. That's why the Bible says that it won't happen until a falling away, because when you fall away, it comes. Jesus came to bring the righteousness that would stop it because God says he won't pour wrath upon the righteous. So if you have enough righteous people's salt, he won't pour out that judgment. It'll wait. Now, if you don't have enough righteous people, then he'll just pull those few righteous people out of it, which is what happens eventually in the end when the Antichrist kills the few righteous people that are left and there's not that many left, and then all of a sudden God just snatches up the last few that are left and then the wrath of God comes out. We go through the tribulation, that's when the Christians are being killed. When there's not enough salt left to justify saving the world, that's when God pulls those last few out and pours his wrath out on the wicked. That is the destruction by fire. And In fact, your example of what it will be like is Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that because of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 29. He says, As Elias said before, Except the Lord of the Sabbath. Who's the Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus. Except that Jesus had come and left us a seed, we would have been as Sodom and made just like unto Gomorrah. If Jesus wouldn't have come, the whole earth would have gone through the wrath 2,000 years ago, would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. He came, he brought the seed. The seed is his spirit, the spirit of truth. It's truth It leads you into righteousness. It produces the fruit of righteousness, the Bible calls it. It's that righteousness that preserves the land. He brought salt. He said, be salt. Don't lose your savor. Go out, spread the gospel, spread the truth, because God won't pour his wrath upon the righteous. That's our job, is to live righteous lives, to produce the fruits, to go out to spread the truth and cause other people to walk in righteousness. That will preserve the land. So we set this precedence to understand something that's happening right now in history. Open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. This was a warning given by Paul of what would re-trigger, right? Jesus came, he plants that seed of truth and righteousness again. They go out, they start to spread it. It pushes it back. We don't know the day or the hour that he's coming because as long as the truth is being spread, it's pushing it back. But when a falling away happens and the evangelism stops and the truth stops and the righteousness stops going forth, then it turns back. It implodes back. We go back to where it was At the time of Jesus it says now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us that as the day of the Lord Christ is at hand that no man deceive you by any means for that day will not come except there come a falling away first all right? That means they stop planting the seeds of truth, of righteousness, the Holy Spirit. All of those things stop going out. It's replaced by false teachings, by lies, by false prophets that are teaching you that it's okay to sin. It's okay to, to continue in your sin. It removes the righteousness, which removes the saltiness, which removes the per- preservation of the land. So when this happens, first there's a falling away from holiness, from righteousness, from truth, from the real teachings of Jesus. And then the man of sin is revealed, that Antichrist, who is called the son of perdition. Now, here's an interesting thing. We've got to look at why it is called the revived Roman Empire. If you've been coming on our Wednesday nights or if you go back on the YouTube and watch some of the videos, you'll kind of get an understanding of the history of Rome, especially at the time of Jesus. Because remember, when Jesus came, it was the last days. It was time for wrath. So we will have the same thing again, only on a global greater scale. So in the time of Jesus, Rome ruled the world. It was that final empire. It was ruled by a Caesar. Caesar had declared himself the son of God. He set himself up in the place of God, wanting to be worshipped as God. It was spirit of Antichrist. That's why Paul said the spirit's already now in the world. So Caesar was a type of Antichrist. He was murdering Christians. He was trying to put out the light of the gospel. He declared himself God. He wanted to be worshipped. There were temples with his statue in it. He was a type of Antichrist. Just like when Paul warns that the Antichrist will reveal himself after this falling away from the truth, and he calls him the son of perdition, the son of sin, the son of wickedness, though he calls himself the son of God, who exposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that... He, as God, setteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Iniquity is lawlessness. The Antichrist works through lawlessness. What do you see manifesting in the world right now? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Now, spiritually that means lawlessness that means not obeying the authority of God what he has spoken to do not walking in accordance with his laws that's why judgment comes for breaking the laws the the agreements of the everlasting covenants now we're not talking about rituals Jesus fulfilled all of that but there's nobody here that can argue the point that you think that it's okay for us to steal murder uh, commit adultery all of those faith those sins of Scripture are still sins, and it says it in the New Testament too be not deceived that none of these things will enter the kingdom of heaven. You still have to walk in accordance to God's moral laws. Amen. But also you can even see it manifesting in the world through the breaking of physical laws, the lawlessness. The Antichrist works through chaos. Amen. Create chaos so that you have to come to him for your security and your solution. It, it creates a governmental system that is all-consuming, all Uh, dependent on him so that you have to worship him as God for your protection for your provision for everything that you need he'll make it easy as long as you give him all of the glory for it and it's Antichrist only he who now letteth will let until he be taken away which is the Holy Spirit When the righteousness is removed, when the truth is removed, when the Holy Spirit is removed, when people no longer obey the leading of the Holy Spirit unto righteousness, that's when these things will begin to take over again and manifest. Then shall that wicked one be revealed, who the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, the rock that crushed the feet in the statue. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So the Antichrist will have lots of power. He will have false prophets. They will have manifestations and lying wonders. They will move in, in, in wonders and miracles and all of these things that we might think are godly and holy, but they'll be done in their own will, not following God's will. Jesus didn't do anything unless the Father told him. Everything was in submission to God's plan and direction. But the Antichrist just does his own thing. He does it for his own glory, for his own purposes. He presses forward with his own agenda. We see this uh, happening throughout Scripture with Janus and Jambers, which were the magicians that worked under Pharaoh. They could mimic and match all of the manifestations of Moses to a point. And then there came a point where God's power was proven to be greater. And then they had to recognize that they weren't. Boy, they matched it for a good while there. And you can see this in the church also and in the world. The Antichrist will have those who will move in signs and lying wonders, but they will validate and promote the lie, not the truth. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, which is that seed, that righteousness, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion... That they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness so they choose to love their sin so they want to believe the lies the false doctrines and so God lets them until they come to a point where they really truly believe it and you can argue with them all day long you can show them the logic you can show them the scriptures You can show them enough scripture where I've had the case where sometimes they just finally say, I don't believe the Bible. It's like, well, why are you claiming to be a Christian? You base your life on a book you don't believe. That's kind of the definition of insanity to me. If you don't believe it, then you're not it. So what exactly is this great deception? We can't say for sure because there's a lot of deception. But I think part of it at least is the doctrine of Balaam. Go to Jude chapter 1, verse 14. Jude was one of the brothers of Jesus. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters because after he was born, then Mary and Joseph did have other children. Uh, The book of James and the book of Jude are two books written by the physical brothers of Jesus. They spent more time with him than anybody else, so I really like their books. I'm sure what they wrote was just stuff that they heard him say a whole lot. And the book of Jude is just, I mean, it's really small, one chapter. The one thing that Jude saw fit to leave us the whole chapter is a warning against the doctrine of Balaam and this is part of what he says you'll have to read it we have too much I'm not going to read all of it but he gives you all of these things talking about basically the doctrine of Balaam Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament that started out right he spoke the truth he he prophesied even of the coming Messiah he, he had a revelation of Jesus He blessed the Israelites when the enemy was trying to curse them, but he started to want the power, the money, the attention, the the title. And so he started working with this evil king, which is another spirit that started to lead him in a way that he encouraged the people that it was okay to sin, that they could do these things that God had told them not to do and there wouldn't be any consequence or replications for it, that they wouldn't lose their right standing with God. But in actuality, he knew that if they lost their righteousness, they would lose their protection and he could take them out. The devil's still doing the same thing to the church and governments are still doing the same things to nations. If they can't take out a godly nation because the blessings of God, his favor, protection, and provision are upon it, get them in agreement with sin, pass some legislation, make them agree. To say that homosexuality is okay. Make them agree to say that abortion is okay. Make them have to pronounce that this person is a gender that they're not. Get them in agreement with sin so they lose their protection. Get out of right standing and the judgment can come on them. That's what Balaam did. Now in churches it happens whenever preachers for the sake of money, congregation, people, pride, pomp, or attention are willing to preach to you that it's okay to stay in your sin where you are and not preaching holiness and righteousness, which is the only way To push back the tide of judgment now we can only do that through the blood of jesus not taking away the blood of jesus without him you cannot walk in righteousness his blood washes us cleanses us allows us to receive his holy spirit so that we can then be empowered by it we can hear it we can choose to obey it and walk in the righteousness that it now teaches us in fact there's a scripture that says that the grace of god was given to teach us to live uh, righteously in this present world that's its purpose and its power that's what grace gives us the ability to overcome Amen. That's right. anything that teaches otherwise is the doctrine of Balaam that's right. Jesus himself says in the book of Revelations in chapter 2 when he's addressing the churches and their different issues he told the church he said that you you've done a lot of good things and you've kept my name and even where Satan was Seated, even where this antichrist spirit was persecuting people, you professed that I was the Lord of all, you professed me as the Son of God. He says, but I have something against you. You have those there among you who teach the doctrine of Balaam, that taught the people it was okay to commit fornication and and eat food, sacrificed to idols, teaching people that it was okay to sin, that they wouldn't be judged for it. And because of it, they died in their sins and faced a judgment. Jesus says this he says because of it if you don't repent and deal with this then I myself will come against you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth Jesus himself fights against the doctrine of Balaam because it's so dangerous and I'm gonna show you why Uh, Jude in chapter 1 well there's only one chapter but verse 14 after giving you a little synopsis on the doctrine of Balaam he says this and Enoch also the seventh man from Adam prophesied these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints, that's the return of Jesus, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust." and their mouths speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They listen to people because they have big titles, big churches, big ministries. They're on TV. They're a politician. It doesn't matter what Jesus said. It doesn't matter what the Scripture said. It doesn't matter what the truth is. I'm going to listen to this person because they have a degree. They have more faith in, in people and because of who they are than in the Word of God. But, beloved, remember... The words which were spoken before of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last days who should walk after their own ungodly lust. The thing that I find so interesting about this part of Jude's warning is that he says that when Jesus comes back with 10,000 of his angels, he's going to have to convince them that they were wrong. That's how strong this delusion is. This doctrine of Balaam, which were people who once had it right. They were once in the church. Remember, the Antichrist isn't coming to deceive the world. They're already deceived. He's got them. He's coming to deceive the church. The church is going to be the biggest supporter of the Antichrist because that's what he's coming to do, to seduce the church. The true church will break apart from it. But the little c church will, in large, support it. And it says that the deception is so great that when Jesus comes back, he will actually have to convince them that their deeds were ungodly and that their speeches against the godly were wrong. Because when these people have this doctrine, the first thing they're going to do is attack those who are actually living righteously. The unrighteous will always call the righteous self-righteous because that they don't want to walk in righteousness. Not even knowing what righteousness is, because righteousness is not doing what you think is right, it's doing what God said is right. And when you do what God said is right, then that's his righteousness, not your righteousness. But when somebody doesn't want to do what God says is right, they say that you're self-righteous, when in actuality it's actually the opposite. All right. I say all of that to bring us back to this point. When Jesus came on the scene, Rome ruled the earth. Rome had a Caesar who was an antichrist. It was Rome that crucified Christ. But it was God's plan to bring the gospel of Jesus into the Roman Empire. That's why when Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, to the rock of pagan worship, and he told them, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was saying, I'm going to bring my church to the place of pagan worship. We're going to overtake it. We're going into the enemy's territory. We're going to leave Jerusalem. And we're going into the enemy's territory, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We know that that place was, they had a place, a cave called the gates of hell, that they believed that that's where demons came out of the earth. What he was doing was going to bring the gospel into Rome, straight to the gates of hell. He was going to overtake the Antichrist's empire to spread the truth in there. So at the time of Jesus, which should have been the end, had not Jesus come and given us more time, that's the empire that was there. What's happening right now, I think, is very critical. Because Rome was founded as a republic. The empire that rules the world recently in our recent history lifetime was started as a republic. Go look at Washington if you want to see a glimpse of what Rome might have actually looked like. But there came a time in Roman history where there was a conflict some bad things started happening and some men started stepping into power and then they didn't want to give up that power. And then there was a struggle between the Republic and what was going to be an empire. Shall we do away with the Republic and put a dictator in charge that stays in power? Shall we change what has been for what will be? There was a time of transition at which the Republic became an empire. And when that happened, that's when Caesar set himself up. And that's when he began to declare himself to be God, son of God, and to be worshipped. The Antichrist in the old Roman Empire, Caesar, set himself up once it was stolen away from the Republic. So where do we stand now in history again? We stand in a falling away where the doctrine of Balaam has taken over the churches, where righteousness has faded, where many decided to stay home and not go to church and not pray and not seek the Lord because they were told to by a man, even though the scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, even more so as the day of the Lord approaches because that's one of the ordinances of the new covenant. The falling away happens, and then all of a sudden things start shifting. And what does it do? It follows the way of Rome. We stand right now on the brink of losing a republic for a dictatorship. What you're seeing now is the collapse of the end of the seventh world empire and the rise of the ten toes and the feet, the eighth world empire that the Antichrist comes out of. It is revived. It comes back to the point that it was at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Now Jesus died and was revived to prove that he couldn't be killed. The Roman Empire is allowed to be revived to prove that it can be killed twice. So God overcomes in the end, but what you're seeing happening is a reversal of the mercy that was given at Calvary because the church has stopped evangelizing, because they trusted in men and politicians and programs and money and pomp and pride and circumstances, and they didn't go demonstrate and live the gospel of Jesus. In fact, much of what has been put forth is actually Antichrist itself. It's been the doctrine of Balaam, preparing the way. Just like the Holy Spirit came before Jesus and prepared the way for him to teach his truths and, and, and announce his coming and make hearts ready to receive him, John the Baptist came before Jesus. The spirit of the false prophet, that Balaam doctrine, comes beforehand to get people ready to receive the Antichrist. And I'm telling you now, most churches and there is truth out there. We know there's always the 7,000 that have not bent the Need of Bill, but the majority, at least in the civilized world, adhere more to the doctrine of Balin than the doctrine of Christ, and they will receive the Antichrist because of it, because it's a very materialistic mindset, and the Antichrist works through materialism. The revived Roman Empire will be global. It will be a global power, political power, It will be a global economic power, it will be a global military power, and it will be a global religious power. And there are scriptures for each of those points. I don't have time to go into them, but biblically it will be Rome revised on a global scale, and it will be Antichrist. Go to Revelations chapter 13. Remember in the vision in Daniel we talked about ten toes. The Old Testament and the New Testament have to be understood together yeah. because you, you really can't understand the new fully unless you understand the old and you can't really understand the old fully until you get the revelation of the new. They work together. There's another part in Daniel we didn't cover for sake of time. I think it's chapter seven that gives another dream that talks about 10 horns that relates into all of this. I um, might do a more in-depth study if I, if the Lord gives it to me, but Revelations 13 is kind of a parallel passage to what we read about Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So we want to read it. Start in verse 1. We'll go from 1 to 9. And I stood upon the sea, the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Right? Same ten horns as the ten toes. We're talking about kingdoms here, kings that are in this empire. So your final empire will be something more of like what we kind of see with like the European Union and the United Nations, how it's a conglomerate of kingdoms ruled under one kingship. And I stood upon the sands of the sea and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The dragon is Satan. He's giving the power and the authority. So it's a counterfeit of the real kingdom that is coming afterwards, which is the kingdom of Christ who will destroy it where God gives him the power. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about what this means. Most people throughout the ages have taught it that whoever the Antichrist is, he might be have an assassination attempt or something, and they think he's going to die, but then he's revived. I think it's quite possible that it actually could be talking about the whole of the system Uh, or if not both parallel, because prophecy does work that way, the Roman Empire died, but it is being revived. It had a deadly wound, but you are seeing it come back to life right now. So the deadly wound is healed, and at this point, the whole world wanders after this beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. So will the saints be here? Yes. Oh, if he's making war with them, then yeah. And to overcome them, will it be difficult? Yes. Yes. And power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So we know it will be global. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Only true saints will resist. Everyone else will worship this beast. If any man have an ear, let him hear. All right, so this is the Roman Empire revised. The new Caesar set up over it is going to be the Antichrist. The next few verses talk about a false prophet that will endorse him to the people and cause the people to believe it. I think, obviously, it probably will be a person just like Jesus had John the Baptist, but also just as there is a spirit of Antichrist, there is also a spirit of false prophecy. Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, the spirit of Balaam that is identified in the Bible is named after a false prophet from the Old Testament. I think that's the false prophet in spirit leading up to it. So even before the man manifests, the teaching, the spirit is already in operation. So starting from verse 10, we'll read through a few more. And he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the saints, so don't become like them. Have patience. Don't let offense take over you that you become just as violent and and hard-hearted as your attackers. And I beheld another beast come out of the earth. Now, the first beast came out of the sea. I associate him with Leviathan of the Old Testament because Leviathan was basically an antichrist type character of the Old Testament. The beast out of the sea I consider to be the same. It's a representation of that antichrist spirit before they had the term antichrist. And I beheld another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a ram, but he spake like a dragon. So he looks like Jesus, but he speaks words from the devil. So is that secular or is that religious? If it's pretending to be Christ, like but it's not then it's a counterfeit within the church getting endorsement for the antichrist because though it is a political system ultimately it's religious because he wants to be worshiped and he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast so this beast the false prophet causes the world to worship the antichrist beast whose deadly wound was healed, the whole system, but also the man in charge of it. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword, and did live the image we're back to that image from all the way back from Nebuchadnezzar's dream there still worship this image set up an image because it's worshiping the system and he had power to give life unto this image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast that he should be killed and he caused all both small and great rich and poor free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead and that no man might buy or sell except that he had the mark or the name of the beast and the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred, three score and six. We know it as six, six, six. Ultimately, tied down, it's man worship, it's worship of his system that provides his protection, his provision. You are married to the world instead of married to Jesus and depending on Jesus and trusting in Jesus and obeying Jesus. There is a man that is leading it who is the man of the Antichrist, but it's a whole system. It's the Roman system all over again where you have to give allegiance to it and to be part of it, you have to receive the mark. This is all coming in secession very quickly and you may see the tipping of it in this election. We pray that we get to push it back a little longer. If we don't, then we keep singing till he comes again, because that means he's coming back really soon. If we can win a few more souls in the meantime, to live as Christ, to die is gain. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are only two entities that I know of in all of scripture that the Bible prophesies that Jesus himself will come and fight against. One is Leviathan in the Old Testament, where he says he'll come and he'll crush the head of Leviathan himself. And Balaam in the book of Revelation, where he says, I'll come and fight against you personally if you even allow this doctrine or people who believe it in your church. That's how much he disdained it and how serious it was. He said, I will fight against you personally. Now, Jesus comes back again, and he's fighting against these two. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet, the spirit of it. And they're both manifested to bring in the Roman Empire, which you are seeing resurrected right now so don't be found among them the Bible says that to be friends with the world makes you the enemy of God there's a point where he says come out of Babylon make yourself separate lest you be partakers of her plague there's gonna come a point where things are gonna have to be cut away decisions are gonna have to be made we're gonna have to decide to follow Jesus no matter the cost and I know that when you when you start getting into these things, it can be a little shaky, a little scary. That's why you always have to remind yourself, three and a half years. It's not that long. It's not that far away. Go ahead to Daniel. this will be our last passage, Daniel chapter twelve, verse seven. And we're going to leave you with this, because I want to show the correlation, again, Old Testament and New, saying the same things all together again because the warning is given that it will get hard against Christians. But the scripture only gives us a three and a half year time period that that part's going to happen. And then God steps in and brings protection and then the wrath of God is poured out upon the wicked and he sets up his kingdom. So do a lot of evangelism. If you do a lot of evangelism now you can push it back and get a few more generations for more people to be brought into the kingdom. If not enough people are joining in and helping and this stuff starts setting in motion, do a lot of evangelism anyway. You're earning reward for yourself in eternity, and you might get one more in before it's too late. Jesus is coming back again. Don't stop, don't hide, don't put your light out. Yes, use wisdom. Yes, seek the Lord. Yes, follow his voice. Don't just run out and do things crazy. We seek the Lord for his instruction, so we walk out his purposes. But to counter some of the doctrines, you will not miss it. We will be here for it. In fact, the whole purpose of this Antichrist is to come against the true followers of Christ to try to, to stop them from spreading the salt. In chapter 12, verse 7 of Daniel, it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, one and times, multiples, two, and a half of time. A half, three and a half. Again, three and a half years. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, will there be Christians? Yes. Will they be scattered? Yes. The enemy will come against us, and we will have to what endure till the end. Those shall be saved they shall be scattered. All these things, when that happens, then all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Daniel didn't understand what he was saying. Because when the people and their their holy power is scattered, then the righteousness is scattered. There's not enough salt left to preserve the land from judgment. Then that wrath that was originally supposed to come 2,000 years ago comes again. Because there's not enough righteousness left to stop it. Oh my Lord. What shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, which is the purpose of the tribulation. That's why the church is in it, because it's to purify the church. It's to try to win back those who have been seduced by this doctrine of Balaam and all of this sin and wickedness. It's to force you to separate from these Babylonian world systems, from all of these adulterous things that we connect ourselves to that are unpleasing to God and cause us to walk in unrighteousness. To separate the wheat from the chaff, it's a tool that basically beats the wheat until it's separated, but it's called a tribulum that's where we get the word tribulation from. The tribulation comes as a mercy to try to save a few more out of the church, the, the fence walkers. You can't walk the fence anymore. You've got to choose a side. Those who know the truth but are playing a little bit, some of them will actually jump to the right side because they know this. They were taught it as a child. They'll get on track. And then those who were messing everything up and leading others astray and and speaking false doctrine, they're going to give up and get out of it because they're not going to face the tribulation that's coming. So it will purify the church that is there. It will make them a family. It will make them true. It will make them determined. It'll be like the church in China that has great power because they're persecuted. It'll be like the early church. So whenever we pray, we want to see the book of Acts. That's what you're praying for, a return to the Roman Empire, because that's what they were facing. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The more the enemy puts out power against you, the more God gives you power to resist, to rise above, and to demonstrate the truth of his word. So praise God. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, we shall be strong and do great exploits, those who know their God, those who are still walking in righteousness says, go thy way, Daniel, close up the book. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate is set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh unto the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days, but go thy way till the end be. For thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. What God was saying to Daniel right here was that there would come a point. This is not for you now. He told Daniel, I know you don't understand, but close the book up and keep it. This is for a later time. He says, you're going to die and you're going to go, but you will stand before God in the end and you'll understand what this was all about. When that time comes, he gives two dates right here, and we're closing with this. It's not that bad, Hezzy. We're going to meet Jesus. <laughs> Keep on singing till he comes again. It says, When the daily sacrifice is taken away, we can't say for sure what this means. It's taught that they will reinstitute the sacrifices in Jerusalem and that they'll start sacrificing to God again, and the Antichrist will come in and take it away. That could happen. They are trying to make that happen. For us as Christians, the Bible says that we are still obliged, we are still obligated to offer daily sacrifices because we are now the priest of the new covenant. Our daily sacrifices are worship, praise, prayer, and preaching. When those things are taken away, when you can no longer daily preach, when you can no longer daily pray, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and and Daniel couldn't pray. When you can't worship out loud, when you can't sing praises, your daily sacrifice is being taken away. If you live in California and they gave the mandate that you couldn't sing worship songs even in your own house to stop the coronavirus, your daily sacrifice is being taken away. That's a spirit of Antichrist pushing the agenda of Antichrist and you're beginning to see it manifest. You're going to get that globally if, it's, if you don't push back the tide. Then it says that when you see that happen, when that becomes a global mandate, when you see this world empire set up the, the law that you can't do these things, you have a certain number of days before Jesus comes back. And again, it comes to three and a half years. So it's not that bad. You can survive anything for three and a half years. We can go camping for three and a half years. It's not that bad. It's only three and a half years. Now, there's an interesting thing. The, the next set of numbers that it says is actually about 45 days shorter than the three and a half years. We can't say for sure why that is. I think that that's when God steps in and pulls his last few remnant out and pours the wrath out. I think the wrath of God will probably only last for that little over a month time period because the earth couldn't withstand it for very long. The days will be shortened. He will pull his elect back, and he will pour his wrath out upon the wicked. So we're going to close today, and we're going to pray. This is the last service that we have before the election. We're going to pray for our nation, but we're going to pray with fervency and understanding that we might be standing on the cusp of the resurrection of the Antichrist empire that the gospel came to put into subjection. The kids preached yesterday, and their messages were all online. It was about how we give account for our words and and how we have to be willing to stand even in the face of persecution and be those Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednegoes. We've got to to speak the truth and speak the gospel. When we stand before God, we want to be ones that when our story is told, there is an account given of how at that pivotal point in history, when so few were willing to speak it, we were willing to speak the truth, to spread the salt to preach righteousness. We don't want to have to stand before all of the saints of history. Can you imagine standing before those who died to bring us out of the rule of the old Roman Empire, spreading the gospel, giving their lives, being tortured and burned alive and fed to lions, and they did all of this to spread the gospel so that we could be brought out of that system into where we are and be able to preach truth with freedom, to have to stand before them and have an account of our lives given that we actually let it slip back the other way because we didn't do our part. We didn't spread the gospel. We didn't shine the light. We got offended. We lost our savor. We weren't salt. We didn't preserve the land. Do your part, no matter what it costs you. You will be rewarded in eternity for it. The Bible is real. It's true. Every part of it Don't let the enemy ever make you feel crazy for believing it, for living it, and for doing it because you can look around you and see it is happening. This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.